Welcome to Built for Life, the podcast dedicated to socially conscious property professionals who believe the future can be better than the present and your property decisions make it so. So to all of the innovators, this podcast will give you behind the scenes access to industry leading experts and researchers on how they think, create, analyze and deliver the best buildings in the world extracting their key advice, information, and considerations that you can apply to your personal and professional life. This is Adam Hines with my co-host, Jordan Ralph. Welcome to the Built for Life podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Built for Life podcast. And today we have two fantastic guests from Air Rated, which is the UK's leading certification system for indoor air quality. We've got Niall Ingham, who is the head of London, and we've got Francesca Brady, who is the head of environmental research. So welcome, guys. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you for having us. Excellent. Today's episode, we are digging very deep into the hidden benefits of clean air and why air quality is now uh, really a vital consideration for long-term asset performance and protection. That's probably something that some people wouldn't associate with better air quality. So today's episode is, is really, really important for anyone who owns or builds or designs or consults on property assets as the industry and sort of expectations and regulations are, are starting to shift and that's changing very, very fast. So if you if you get left behind with these sorts of things, you can end up with a very expensive lemon for an asset, which nobody wants. So this podcast is basically dedicated to help everyone get ahead of the curve with some education. Um, so let's just dive straight in. So Francesca, I've got the first question for you, if that's okay. Could you just give us a bit of an overview as to the science behind air quality and sort of why this is important for the property industry? Yes. So I think when we're looking at air quality, there are multiple different benefits that can be reaped from good air quality. So you've obviously got the health and well-being, which to date has been seen as a nice to have, along with comfort. So they're very important, but yeah, have sort of been seen as um, fluffy. But also there is the productivity angle to having good indoor environments. So I think particularly with Air Rated, we look at a standardised approach that touches on the health, well-being, comfort and productivity angles. So the types of parameters we would look at are things like PM 2.5. So not getting too technical, but that's fine dust. It's about 3% of the width of a human hair. And that's the sort of nasty stuff that can get really deep into the lungs, even into the bloodstream, and can aggravate conditions like asthma and other respiratory conditions. And then in the long term can cause cardiovascular disease and COPD, so chronic obstructive pulmonary disorder. Um, really nasty stuff. It's also been associated with COVID because it has, if you're exposed to high levels over a prolonged period of time, it does decrease your lung function. So if someone were to be exposed for a long period of time to high levels and then contract COVID, then their health outcomes would be poorer. The recovery time would be longer. So it's really important to be looking at these fine dust levels. Um, They're being monitored outdoors, but not necessarily in the indoor environment. And the indoors can have two to five times more concentration of PM2.5. So it's really important to be looking at. 
And then a couple of the other parameters we look at are TVOCs, which are total volatile organic compounds. So essentially chemicals. And these are things that are off gas is the term that's used from new soft furnishings and carpets and paints and varnishes, but also from cleaning products. So I think in a lot of buildings, we see quite potent chemicals used for cleaning. Um, and actually, it's just a very easy win to run down these chemicals to eco-friendly products that don't compromise indoor air quality. Because with these chemicals, they can irritate your eyes and your airways, make them dry and itchy. So they're, again, really nasty things and can affect respiratory conditions. Um, so following on from that, we look at temperature and humidity, which most recently have been thrown into the spotlight, not only because they affect comfort of people in buildings, but they also have an association with the uh, survival rate of COVID, the C word. Um, and they can yeah, prolong the survival rate. Um, and also the virus can remain airborne for a bit longer if the temperature and humidity are out of whack. Um, if the humidity is too dry, it can also dry out your mucous membranes, which sounds pretty grim. But this is your body's natural defense to picking out viruses. And actually, when we look at temperature and humidity, we look at it in the long term because COVID is not the first virus. It's not going to be the last. So we're looking at this in terms of COVID. Yes, now, because it's sort of been the catalyst for looking at temperature and humidity, but also the common cold and flu, which are seasonal things. Um, and Francesca, can I can I can I just jump in there? Sorry, I'm just I'm really interested in what you're saying is the context of of these issues. Um and as you're talking, I'm just racking through my brain as to offices that I've occupied. And I think that's definitely an issue when I was in there. What's the in terms of like the benchmark of of what you test, where would you say that current offices are? I mean, that's a bit broad, but um, would you say that there's a there's a massive lag in this understanding of existing offices? I would say yes. Um, I think a lot of existing stock sort of falls short, particularly when it comes to humidity. So humidification systems are quite heavy investment into a building's infrastructure. And that is why they sort of get value engineered out. But for the long term life of the building and future proofing the building itself and looking after the people inside the building, it's one of those things that shouldn't have been neglected, but has been. I'd say in new buildings, we're we're sort of getting there. Um Obviously, sustainability is a massive thing. So buildings are becoming more airtight, which in theory is trapping pollutants. I think that was probably happening about 10 years ago. Now, mm -hmm. the movement is more towards sustainability with health and well-being in mind, which we really try and promote because the two are meant to work hand in hand and be complementary. But perhaps a couple of years ago, that wasn't really happening. But I think new buildings definitely are are much better. Yeah. So what's the uh, from 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 an aerated perspective, how do you how, when you guys uh, are, are appointed and you're incorporated within the project team? How do you go about the, the process of testing a building? What what does that look like? Yes, yeah, so we have um, two different sorts of routes where we can come in at design stage. So it's mm -hmm. what we call an air score design and operation where our ME team can come and look to review and assess the building specification and then suggest some optimizations to really make this building as healthy as it can be. 
Um, I think a lot of ME engineers and MEP teams are quite well versed in sustainability now, but perhaps don't quite have that skill of working in the healthy buildings techniques. So that's sort of where our team come in. And um, to date, it's just been like a wholly collaborative approach with ME teams. They're very keen to learn. I think they realise that healthy buildings are, I mean, they've sort of been coined one of the lines of defence when it comes to yeah. So um, it, it's yep. a massive topic and they're very receptive. Francesca, what are the sort of the, the standard things that you would typically see at the design stage that um, yeah, design teams get wrong that you would usually pick up on? I think like in, in the most recent examples, it will be things like elevated levels of pollutants outdoors particularly things like nitrogen dioxide. And I think either because there just hasn't been that data to hand about the outdoor environment or perhaps not the knowledge of how to buffer against that. Things like uh, carbon filters. So just just to jump in on that one. So that's saying where where that building is located, the, the air quality in that area isn't great. And it's when they've obviously built a building, that air quality from externally is then coming internally and causing issues as opposed to the building causing the issue. Is that what you mean? Exactly. Yes, that is what I mean. So okay. you are... Def- that's definitely something that a design team wouldn't consider when when you're looking at, yeah, your concept design is what is the actual air quality in the area that we're going to be placing this asset. That's that's a really helpful way to look at it is, yeah, where are we actually going to be buying an asset and what's the air quality in that direct vicinity? Yeah, and I think it's really important to pick up on um, the fact that, I mean, there are high levels of pollutants in areas and although it's not mandatory practice to be putting in these filters, like carbon filters, gas phase filters, to filter out traffic fumes like nitrogen dioxide, it is in theory best practice. And I think people should always bear in mind that although it's not mandatory now, things will change. It's not if they're going to change, it's when they're going to change. So employing that sort of uh, technology and uh, innovation now will benefit you in the long term. I think as well, the the way that it seems to be going is that we're going to be moving to HVAC systems where more fresh air is being pulled through, potentially 100% fresh air rather than recirculation. And if that's going to be the case, people are going to need to think carefully about the filtration in built-up areas where there are a number of pollutants that they could be dragging through their systems. And no, just on, on, we'll probably come on to this in a second, but just on that point, what's driving that air circulation change under HVAC, fresh air? Is that is that something that's just the market's changing in itself because of covid or is that is this something that's just looking at best practice for design covid's definitely been a driver um and i think like with a lot of things this was probably coming already and covid has accelerated it Um, so i think that's probably where it's coming from in terms of the demand yeah and following that i would say with recirculated air there's always been a massive play on the energy saving sustainability side of things Whereas pulling 100% outdoor air has always been seen as massively energy consumptive and has sort of been, again, neglected. I mean, if you're pulling 100% outdoor air, it's going to dilute all of those nasties that are building up inside, which obviously is good for health and well-being of the people inside. But again, because there's been such a massive focus on sustainability in the last few years, that's why uh, recirculated air has been so big. 
Yeah. And that's why when we're giving our advice, um, we always take into account where the building is positioned. So we don't apply a cutter approach. We look at where the building is because if it's in the middle of the countryside, it's not going to need all those filters which are going to rack up the energy consumption. So it's about, it's about giving advice that's appropriate for the location and the spec of the building. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what's interesting is from our perspective, when we set in project delivery teams as PM and QS, we we flag to design teams how how's the air quality in this building going to be improved or or has that been considered? And we've just done a, an exercise for a, a student fund for a new scheme that they have in London, and it was on a busy A road, and it was just something that we said this could be an issue and it needs to be looked at, um, and it needs to be flagged back to the design team. How often is there with you guys and the design team? Is it um, you're providing them with the specification advice to incorporate within, within existing systems? Is that the way you guys work best? No, we tend to come at it the other way around. So we the on-site team will, will draw up an outline specification and then we'll look at it with a fresh set of eyes and maybe suggest some optimizations um, that they can look at, um, again, from the human health perspective. Um, rather than just the sustainability angle. So we look at both, but um, we just, yeah, we, we're a means of sense checking it and thinking about how it could be improved if it needs to be. Francesca, could I, could I just rewind back to the beginning when you said that you looked at two aspects, health and wellbeing and productivity. So could I just ask if you, I'll dig a bit deeper into productivity. Is, is productivity improved as a result of the actual quality of the air or is it improved as a result of more oxygen in the air? Because I know that casinos and things actually pump oxygen into their buildings to keep people awake and alert for longer so they stay gambling. Is is there any relationship between those two aspects? I mean, definitely having higher levels of oxygen is, yes, going to make you more productive, but in general, better air quality as a whole um, is much better for cognitive performance. So things like TVOCs, those chemicals that I was talking about earlier, can have an impact on cognitive performance. It sort of depends what the chemicals are, because, I mean, some of them you get from just cooking your food in the microwave. Those sorts of things aren't going to impair cognitive performance, but things like formaldehyde and benzene will. They're kind of the really nasty stuff that comes off um, kind of poor quality and highly manufactured materials. Um, I'd also say there are studies out there to show um, declines in cognitive performance and productivity associated with PM 2.5. So there's um, quite a nice study that was conducted probably about five or six years ago now, and it was on a trading floor in New York. And they had looked at the results from the traders and analysed the levels of PM 2.5 in the air. And they did see a significant correlation between the output from these traders and the levels of PM2.5 in the air. So CO2 is obviously the massive main driver for productivity that everyone talks about. But there are other elements like the levels of TVOCs and PM2.5 and then also temperature. So there's a really nice comprehensive study that amalgamates sort of 20, 25 different studies that have been carried out over the past decade. And that suggests that for every one degree above 25 degrees Celsius, you lose about 2% in productivity. So I would say there are multiple wow. factors. And it's so is, that, is that why Australians are a little bit slower than everyone else? 
Possibly. You said it. <laughs> I knew there was a reason. <laughs> You've acclimatised now, though, so well done. Yeah, yeah. So now I'm back to peak performance. <laughs> Sorry to uh, have, have killed your flow, but uh, please continue. So every one degree above 25, you're, you're declining in cognitive performance. Yeah, you lose about 2% in productivity, it is suggested. I mean, obviously, this is wholly dependent on gender, weight. There are so many physiological factors that come into play. Um, but if you're just looking at it, looking at a big data set, which a lot of these studies were, then it kind of averages out as as the case for every degree above 25. Yeah, you lose about 2% in productivity. And so this is just say, a very... I'm sure this is a, an almost impossible question to ask, but I, I suppose I'm looking for a gut feel here. Uh, what sort of percentage of, of buildings do you feel would be scoring poorly in in that respect and that's impacting productivity? Really good question. Uh, I would say, I mean, because there are multiple different factors to take into account and a lot of building stock is existing and possibly hasn't taken this into account i would say definitely like 60 65 percent are underperforming wow um, but it wouldn't take that much to bring them up to standards a lot of them follow best practice guidance in terms of ventilation rate and filtration on the ventilation systems so to filter out dust and they meet the bare minimum requirement for ventilation to lower levels of co2 and tvocs but it's things like if you're in a meeting room and you've got six people and you're in there for an hour and you've kept all the doors shut and there's adequate ventilation then levels of co2 are going to build up the temperature is going to build and it's things like that where i don't think there's perhaps been enough focus drawn to occupancy levels and indoor air quality and um, to put that into context with the CO2 thing, um, as a property person, I'll always bring it back to alcohol. Um, <laughs> so if you're in the, if you're in a meeting room and the CO2 levels rise by a thousand parts per million, which is really easy to happen. It's not a huge amount. Um, you often find it when you're in a busy room, like you'll be looking at the PowerPoint presentation and your eyes will start to drop and your head will start nodding. Not just when I'm doing a, a presentation, I might add. Um, but that, that's, and it's not because the temperature's risen necessarily, you start feeling that closeness. Um, so anyway, where I was going with that is, that is when you get to that level of CO2, that thousand parts per million figure, for your cognitive performance, that's the equivalent of having two pints of beer. Um, which, which is crazy number. You think. That's madness, that, yeah. Yeah, you think when when people are in a boardroom where multi-million pound decisions are being made and effectively everyone in the room is half cut. Well, two pints of beer for Jordan is like 12 for any other normal human being. So <laughs> I need to be very wary of this. <laughs> yeah, massively. Oh, I've made a lot of decisions drunk, it seems. <laughs> so, that, that actually leads us quite nicely, Niall, into the, the next question. We've, I suppose we've touched on what the operational benefits are, like the financial benefits to a, a business by having better air quality as you're getting better productivity. Um, 
Have you come across any other sort of financial benefits in terms of increased sale prices and things like that by having a better air quality and marketing that? Yeah, sure. It's um, I think it's very difficult from the landlord side perspective to quantify it um, because it's very difficult to tell with a building what element is is what part of that building that value is the healthy part. Is it just because there's so many other factors that give you either a rental increase or, in fact, the investment value, like where the building is located, the specification, the amenities with it. So the I would come at it from the other way around in the occupier demand point of view. Um, so there is actually a really nice study that was done in uh, 2016. Um, Francesco, you're not the only one who has research studies to back up their points, I might add. <laughs> Uh, (laughs) so i found this really nice one that was done um in the netherlands and what they did was they um had 700 government employees and they asked them to relocate to a healthier green building i think it was in limburg um but what they were able to do is they were able to keep the another proportion of those government um employees in their existing building which didn't have healthy credentials and was a pretty poor office building. Um, so they they kept an eye on them and um, and had a look at the um, and did staff quarterly surveys um, and the results were actually um, quite incredible because what they showed was by looking at the two control groups, the ones who are in the healthier building, they had a two percent reduction in absenteeism. So to put that in context, um, wow. that reduction in sick days equates to 25,000 euros annually. And over the life of a building, that is over a million. So and that's in a government building where you typically have employees who may be on lower salaries. So go on to a trading floor that um, that cost could be huge. Um, so they um I think the actual savings may have been more than that, around seventy million euros across the life of the building. But they um they also I mean in doing this they also took into account the um the fact that there was a higher increase in building the healthy building. So that is a net gain from that figure. And do you feel that operators now that are that are sort of more well-being focused are, are taking advantage of having better air quality in, in their marketing or do you think that's something that's definitely uh, underused and could be that's like quite an opportunity to improve marketing for either selling a, an asset or trying to yeah negotiate lease terms and things like that yeah definitely so um we recently did a building in um uh, in europe and they had occupiers on viewings who are asking specifically about the air quality um we've heard about um tenants on viewings who are bringing their own m&e consultants with them which as an ex-agent i imagine is quite terrifying for the person doing the viewing tour um having a load of <laughs> technical questions thrown at them um and what we were able to do actually for this building was as part of our as, as part of our offering we were able to find a report and then the land was actually able to pass that on to the prospective tenant. Um, and that actually transacted off the back of it, which is really interesting. Um, so there's definitely a lot more talk about um, about it in the market and it is being used as a real differentiator um, for buildings. And in this market, everything, every building needs to have a USP because there'll be so much more choice. Um, so, as I mentioned, it's difficult to 
quantify the value premium, but there is definitely a brown discount for a building that is poorly performing in the fact that it will it will be vacant for longer. It'll be harder to hold on to tenants. Um, and we're actually now even hearing about lenders who are um, we've been asked to do some consulting work for a lender because they are concerned that their stock is at risk of, that they've lent on is at risk of obsolescence. Which is a point I'd like to actually touch on, actually, because, um, Francesca, you mentioned the link between health and well-being and sustainability. And there are huge parallels within those those two requirements. Firstly, on the sustainability angle, because this is something that Adam and I have been asked to, to look at recently in terms of um, net zero carbon targets and, and how those achieve. Is there in terms of what you guys do and what you're looking at, how, how much does the sustainability piece come into to the air quality? Is it just patching into existing systems which are designed for reduced carbon output or is there something that can be added in with, within what you do? I'm not sure I quite understand the question, actually. Sorry, Jordan. No, so I suppose what I'm saying is that we, we've been, um, when we're looking at buildings now, we, and it's what you said about the obsolescence of, of stock in the future, we, there is a huge shift now towards thinking about, is this building going to be fit for purpose in not only in 50, 60 years time, but actually 15 years time because of the, the targets that are going to start to get more stringent for reduced carbon for, for, um, for, better operational efficiency i guess what's coming out of that review and that conversation that we're having is that that's then driving what buildings are more in demand yeah and is there a link between what you guys are doing with your work and patching into that sustainability agenda or is there is it just purely on the health and well-being angle that you're um, looking at interesting so i think there is parallels to the sustainability thing and the fact that um, obviously, there's the the targets for becoming carbon neutral will become more and more stringent, and that is does seem to be starting to happen on the the, the health and well-being side in relation to air quality. Um, there are a number of politicians at the moment lobbying for more stringent um, controls on air quality internally, and also there is some talk there, at least there was pre-lockdown. Um, there was a case being made on a white paper to have this incorporated into planning level. So I think there's definitely a parallel there. Yeah, because what I find interesting is the the, the emissions that are, are causing the, a lot of the issues that we're seeing with, with global temperatures are then causing impact to our health and well-being. And it was it's just an interesting parallel between those two. And, and for, I think for a long time. From, from our perspective, the industry looked at those as two separate requirements. Is my building sustainable and does it improve health and well-being? But actually, they are so interlinked in what you're trying to achieve. It's it's amazing. So, I, no, I think there was a – it wasn't a trick question. I was just trying to see mm. if there was a, a way yes, that you guys are starting to think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, think so. I, I, I have to say, not wanting to um, put the knife in the back of sustainability, but there – I will um, – <laughs> There was, um, I mean, there there has been, there are cases where that has actually moved against um, being in the benefit of the occupants. We've spent so long trying to think about the environment, it's actually had an effect on the building's occupants. So as they've become more and more insulated to hit sustainability targets, often that's been at the detriment um, of of um, of occupant, building occupants, um, particularly actually in residential new build where. As I say, they're so geared up for 
for insulation and energy performance that it can have um it can have some health effects on on the people inside those buildings I think, I think Fra- Francesca was going to ask a uh, response to my trick question. I'm keen to see what she said. Yeah, I think we can probably draw a parallel to um, vehicle emissions. So there was this whole um, sort of push by the government to move away from petrol cars towards diesel about a decade or so ago. And that was because um, when petrol combusts, it releases a lot of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, which affects climate change and there was this whole emphasis on climate change climate change petrol is bad so we moved to diesel and then diesel cars when diesel combusts releases a whole ton of nitrogen dioxide and other nox gases and that is really bad for our respiratory health so one of them is kind of killing us quickly the other one is damaging the climate and killing us very slowly the two should have been thought about at the same time though because it was one of them, again, like sustainability came first and health and well-being was neglected. And now that I actually that's really bad, we should move back away from diesel. So I think there's always been um, a disconnect between sustainability and health and well-being. Um, and the two, regardless of what sort of um, environment you're looking at, whether it is the outdoor environment or the indoors, we need to be thinking about how the two work together. And it's things like if you're um, looking at your indoor environment, and you are, for example, looking at the levels of dust and they seemed to be increasing and increasing and increasing. And then we were able to diagnose that perhaps it was a problem that your filters were blocked um, and you need to clean them more regularly than the six months that is planned into your maintenance schedule. Then if you cleaned them, it would actually be better for energy consumption because your building systems aren't going, having to go into overrides trying to push outdoor air through this blocked up so i think there are so many things where monitoring what's going on inside to do with air quality actually in the long term benefits the sustainability of the building and makes everything more proactive yeah absolutely and a question i would like to ask you back to your your point around um obsolescence of property and you've been asked by i think it's an institutional funder you said to to look at um their assets that they hold what's the what do you think's driven that approach is it changing agendas or consumer sentiment is, is what's, yeah. what's pushing that? I think I think there's a couple of things. They're worried that their assets will get left behind and that obsolescence point I mentioned. Um, there's also the changing occupier demand piece. Um, so we have had instances where tenants have taken it into their own hands to do monitor and indoor air quality because they have suspected that it may have been poor and one of them stopped paying rent. Extreme example, but wow. it does happen. And wow. whether, yeah, I know. Can you imagine being that asset manager and <laughs> having that land on your desk? <laughs> but that's just a, a perfect example of where the design has let down that asset's performance. So that asset has instantly become a liability as a result of the design and fit out of that building. Precisely, yeah, absolutely. And we it's also being used at Rent Review now as leverage. Um again, not something you want to be having on the table when you're trying to get an increase in the rents. Um I would say the other thing that's sort of playing into this now is the change in consumer demands as well. So in office context, this isn't the occupier, it's the occupier's staff. But if the staff are unhappy, that then goes up the chain through management and what was the occupier's problem then becomes the landlord's problem. 
So to put that in context of why that's becoming more of an issue, um, there are now websites where you can look up the air quality in area um, for free and it will tell you if it's good or if it's bad um, and what those pollutants are in that area. So for someone who's looking on the house search, they may well take that into account if they suffer from asthma or something, they may decide not to not to live in that area. Um, so that is a potential vulnerability for landlords. Um, and the second thing is the technology piece. Um, the, there are now portable air quality monitors you can get that are fit into the palm of your hand. Um, there is a new chip that's been developed by Bosch, um, which could be incorporated in the next iPhone. And these air quality sensors, it's almost irrelevant if they are accurate or not. A lot of them aren't. Because as soon as people start bringing them into offices, whether they're accurate or not, if they complain to their to their employer, that then becomes the landlord's problem. And there is a liability piece there as well. So that leads quite nicely into sort of, I suppose, the future proofing of assets, because it's quite, um, I suppose, difficult for operators who are going to be, let's just say they're in the the design stage at the moment, that asset's probably going to have a life cycle of 50, 60, 70 years. And one would assume that in that period, they're going to face quite significant regulation changes and specifically, well, a lot of it will be driven by sustainability, trying to meet the, the zero carbon targets in 2050, but I'm sure there'll be quite a big push in air quality as well. So how would you guys, I suppose, approach future-proofing a building for regulations that may not be there at the moment? And then how have you sort of seen changes in the market from maybe insurers or lenders towards that that's going to push that sort of regulation change quicker? Well, I think we're at the very beginning of it for landlords. Um, I think, again, as I said, this COVID thing has accelerated everything. Um, I think asset owners and developers have a really hard time with this because you look at the gestation period from a design phase to when it actually PCs, um, it could be two, three, four years, and it's very difficult to predict ahead how you can future-proof it. So if I think the the best answer for that is you've got to build the buildings to as high a spec as you can within, obviously, the financial restraints available. Um, it sounds trite to say it, but it is true. The, the higher spec building you have, the longer the life cycle of that building before it becomes obsolete. Um, well, your example before with the tenant not refusing to pay rent is the perfect example of that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think I would also, um, just to follow up on the, the tenant who withheld rent, I think there is this massive pressure on landlords and perhaps it, they should take ownership of the fact that they should be translating the health of the space that they are handing over to a tenant. Because in that particular case, it could have been the way that the tenant was using the space and actually be out of the landlord's control. Because that's one of the questions we get asked a lot is, well, when you come in and monitor my building and I'm a landlord, I can't control what my tenants are doing in their spaces. Um, particularly if a, if a tenant gets a cat A space, then they're going to fit it out and then be using it. Um, so a landlord, to an extent, can be accountable for what's going on in the indoor environment um, at a plant level, but really at at human level and the way uh, a space is being used and the behavioural sort of aspect of it, there is a lot of accountability for how tenants are using space, which is why 
particularly in, in our roles, we try and push the educational side of things because, again, with, with the tenant or with a resident in um, in their home, it's a lot of the time you're doing things that compromise indoor air quality and you're just completely unaware because not everyone is up to speed with this sort of thing. Mm. That's a, a fantastic point, something I had completely overlooked, um, that when you're saying the air quality is poor and that tenant's refusing to pay, that may have been – and one would assume that's the landlord's problem and they have been the cause of that, but that's not necessarily the case. And that is definitely something I had completely overlooked. It may have been the furniture that that tenant had put in um, that was causing those those air quality issues. So a really interesting dynamic. In in that respect, is there any, um, I suppose, your tests that you can do? Would, yes. that, would that pinpoint where the causes are coming from? So yeah. you could, I suppose, apportion the blame to... Where, who's at fault and what needs to be done to fix it? Yeah, sometimes it's very difficult, but I mean, we try and get as much information as we can. So we conduct baseline studies, which can, in theory, uh, be like the, the landlord air score versus what it's like when it's in use. Um, and also when we do site surveys, we'll do an environmental site survey, a mechanical site survey. So we're really getting the whole picture. And we monitor or we get information from government run in situ outdoor monitoring stations because perhaps it's not the landlord or the tenant. It's actually something's happening outside. Maybe there's a construction site or something. And it just so happens that this is giving rise to elevated levels of dust. Um, so it's all these sorts of things that we pick up on to look at the whole picture and really try and diagnose the issue. Um, we did have a case where an occupier had instructed us to look at their air quality and they were performing really well apart from humidity and humidity tends to be a plant problem so the ownership there does lie with the landlord so I think sometimes it is quite easy to diagnose um, other times not so much and then it just really needs to be a collaborative approach between both parties in terms of how to remediate um, but yeah, a lot of the time it is fairly simple to diagnose, but you do get the exceptional case, which is slightly more difficult. Francesca's absolutely right there, and it about the collaborative approach, and that's something we're really keen to be able to help with when 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 with what we're doing. So obviously, when sort of the the process we go through, we have the design phase where we input to do with our design operation score ahead of PC. But then when we do the full air score, that's when the building is completed. And normally with an office, that will be when it's cat A or when it's fitted, um, that we will do an air score then when it is fully in the landlord's control. Um, but at renewal, as Francesca mentioned, we then switch it into a baseline study, just monitoring the areas that are in the landlord's control. We do also monitor those elements which are sort of occupied dependent. Um, and there's actually a really nice opportunity for a bit of tenant engagement piece there, because although the tenant control bits won't affect their score, the landlord can choose to share that data with the with the tenant so they can understand how they can improve their own air quality. Um, and that's something we think is fantastic to be able to have that that relationship with with your occupiers. Um, it's one of the reasons why we provide handbooks as well. So when the landlord is handing over to the tenant, they know that they've been given all the best environment to be able to do it. And it's over to the tenant then to carry on that with their 
would their cat be for Taz? I'm just going to jump in with one question here. I'm interested is we've mentioned about a building which is in operation and then measuring it. Is there a way of forecasting what the air quality might be based on the cat B design of something or even if someone just takes a cat A space as 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 a concept of a new build? Is there a way of saying we think it's going to be impacted here or these are the scores or is there an, is is that mainly once it's in operation and you guys come up with the these are some of the metrics of your design that need to be enhanced and then we can monitor it once it's in situ. Is there a way of doing it pre-design it's, or pre-build? It's a lot more difficult. The things that you can do are like there are very rudimentary calculations that you can use where you input ventilation rate and occupancy rate. So then you can start mm-hmm. to understand what, in theory, your CO2, uh, CO2 level should be. Um, so there are calculations for that. There are thermal models that can be um, generated. When it comes to PM2.5, in general, there tends to be a one-to-one ratio relationship between the outdoors and the indoors for mechanically ventilated spaces. Um, oh, okay. so if you were able, and this is very uh, difficult, so if you were able to get outdoor data for PM2.5, you could probably work out. The building does always act as a good buffer against the external environment, but there are just these um, kind of rule of thumb ratios and calculations that are used. But you could, in theory, try and predict what it was going to be indoors um, and then obviously put measures in place to improve that um, by upping your, vent- um, upping your filtration rates and all that sort of stuff. The difficulty comes from the outdoor data side of things because the government run stations are few and far between. In London, Mm. there is a greater density of them. But as soon as you get outside of London, they are miles and miles apart. Um, So there's definitely a letdown there because even these projects where there are high levels of nitrogen dioxide outside. If no one can get access to that data, it's very difficult for anyone to be able to uh, build anything into a specification to buffer against this sort of thing. So that's particularly where you get companies like, there's one called Breezometer, and they take lots of data from these government-run stations, and they overlay weather data and traffic data because they're trying to build a greater data set to help with things like this to map outdoor air quality, you know, more granular than it is at the moment. Yeah, no, it's, it's really interesting just from, I'm just thinking back to, to being in design team meetings and, and this, this stuff inherently just hasn't been discussed, but it's, yeah. it is so crucial, isn't it? In a, in a, I'm just thinking of cats and cat B fit out work that I've done. And I know one particular scheme is, is flanked by two busy roads in the centre of London. Yeah. Uh, I'm just thinking that is definitely, <laughs> that's definitely going to be impacted and it's designed beautifully it's, it's amazing but there i know from for a fact just from the specification there is no consideration around indoor air quality and it's yeah. i just wonder just how important that would have been in this climate to market that space because it's going to market in the next month so um no that's really interesting and i think interestingly is is knowing at the right stages when you guys can add the most value in, in you the stole concept. my question that was my question <laughs> Because we share the same script, I'm, I'm just jumping ahead. <laughs> um, but, so I'm, I'm going to take over now to ask Go my on. question. Next, Go my next question, which we didn't hear what you just said. Sorry, um, guys. At what at what point um, 
would you typically be appointed or what would be the ideal point that you would be appointed in a in a design team in the reba stages to sure. have the best impact yeah um for us um from stage two onwards is really good for us um we have been asked to provide um support applying stage four um so we had a big um placemaking scheme where we were asked at planning level to provide some input to show that the developer was thinking about it um but in terms of getting into the actual specific the specification that's stage two onwards um so again we can provide advice later on but obviously when you're starting to fix costs it may not be ideal to to have to revisit what would you typically be doing at stage two would you be looking at sort of external air quality in the surrounding area of the building and then i suppose just a high level of the spec and almost like an advisory role just to point everyone in true north Yeah. yeah exactly yeah. Excellent. Okay. Sorry. Um, <laughs> that really killed <laughs> <laughs> Francesca, why don't you answer it? Because you can be much more eloquent and probably provide a um, answer that's longer than five seconds. Question that I can answer. Um, yes, we do look at outdoor air quality um, and we do advise on the specification. So, again, I think we're sort of reiterating the point, but we do take into account sustainability because we would absolutely not want to compromise anybody's sustainability targets. Um, particularly when we're looking at stuff like comfort, um, there are lots of Briam credits around thermal comfort that kind of tick the box for what we're looking at in terms of temperature. And the same with um, with things like Briam. They're a sustainability credential. Um, however, they've got credits for using low VOC materials which is great because that's going to improve the indoor environment. And that is sort of where, again, there is overlap because there are a lot of it's like there's a nod to health and well-being in the sustainability standards. It's just there needs to be a bit more emphasis on it. And that's where we come in. So we're not trying to like override and rewrite the system or anything, but we are there to just put more emphasis on a point that's already being made in a lot of sustainability standards. It's just you know, really propelling it into the spotlight is what we're doing. The other thing what an eloquent that. response. I know, it was much better than mine, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, there's I'm... nothing wrong with efficiency there. There's nothing wrong with a one-word response. <laughs> Five-minute Just a grunt. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was just going to say as well on that point that with these other standards, that's something we're very keen to be able to integrate with. So, all our, our minimum standard certified air score um, is in line with thresholds for BRIAM and SIBSI Guide A. Um, and that's just to have transparency on how we're operating and to be able to have that that, that tip box there as well. Love it. Uh, this is a super, super selfish question, but I'm going to go for it. What Do you guys have any sort of home hacks for let's just say a listener is sitting at home going, I wonder what my air quality score is now and I wonder how I can improve it. What is do you have any sort of yeah, very cheap, quick things that people can do to A assess their home uh, their air quality and the first thing I'd say on that is stop smoking 40 cigarettes a day in your flat. That would be a really cost-effective and easy win. <laughs> if I don't want to do that, what's my next option? <laughs> I think, um, well, going back to the point that Niall brought up about um, these consumer-grade sensors, 
it is like it's just a couple of hundred quid on Amazon. You can buy yourself an indoor air quality monitor. Um, I mean, there's always like buy beware. Some of them are pretty shoddy. Um, but things like the aware, they've got a domestic product and it looks nice. Um, and there are accurate readings for the, the price point. So you can always bring in your own air quality monitor. Um, there was, I mean, there have been a few studies before where people have, uh, strawberry plants and other sort of plants on windowsills and indoors. And it's quite a good determinant of how much ozone is in your environment because you get little spots on the leaves. Um, but that's quite a, uh, quite a basic thing to do. Um, but yeah, top tips for improving indoor air quality in the home. Um, if you don't have a tumble dryer and you are air drying your clothes, then just ventilating the space is great because otherwise it's going to have a buildup of humidity, uh, buildup of VOCs. It's going to cause damp problems. So ventilating the spaces where you're air drying clothes is a massive one. And then that also leads on to using the extractor when there's usually an extractor in a bathroom. So when you're having a shower, make sure that it's on and then leave it on for 20 minutes after you've showered as well. Um, and the same for cooking with the extractor hood. Switch it on whilst you're cooking and leave it on for 20 minutes after you've after you've stopped cooking. Because I think it's um, I think a lot of normal practice is if you're going to use the extractor hood, you use it for the duration of you cooking and then you switch it off as soon as you switch the hob off. And actually, it should be left on for a little while afterwards. Um, in naturally ventilated homes. So like I know in in the place that I live. We've got trickle ventilation. Um, not many people might know what that is, but there are little vents above uh, doors and windows that you can slide open. And it just it just lets in a little bit of a draft. Um, but it's good for diluting pollutants that are building up during the day. And if you open it at night, it's really good because there's better outdoor air quality. So you're not compromising anything indoors. So if you open it, then it's good for diluting everything that's building up during the day. It's also really good for regulating temperature and humidity. Um, and then also, I'd say just the whole thing around reducing the chemicals in the environment. So if you're going to buy new furniture, perhaps buy secondhand furniture or ones that have the label for low VOCs and the same with paints as well and cleaning products. Um, and also, I know people always hate this one, but minimizing the use of air fresheners and candles or if you're going to use candles, use the natural ones. So they've got like beeswax and soy. They're much better. Um, and then I guess a slightly more costly approach is something called PIV. Um, so I was talking to a guy called Nathan at Farmwood Emony, they're down in Kent, and he was talking about PIV, which is basically a system that you can put in your loft or in a wall cavity, and it increases ventilation in a naturally ventilated space, and it's all to do with pressure differential. So it's kind of circulating the air, improving ventilation in a space that otherwise you would just be opening windows and perhaps not getting that the same airflow. But I think people are always a bit concerned about naturally ventilated spaces and how to really improve the environment there. So this system costs, I think, probably 800 pounds a grand. Um, but putting that in your loft or your wall cavity, like that's a really 
It's a really big thing to do. It's a big bit of investment as opposed to just swapping out your cleaning products and candles. Um, but it, it, it's a big thing and it can make a big difference. Huge. Always Adam, a very, that, very helpful is, tip. Is that going to be helpful for your friend that you've asked that question? Before? Yeah, that was, yeah, that good, good point. That was for a, a friend of a friend. So I'll let, I'll let them know what you said. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and that friend was Jordan. Yeah. <laughs> blame my, blame my candle out now. There's no candle. So guys, any, uh, any last advice uh, for the property industry on how they should approach air quality or do you think you've emptied the tank uh, with advice? <laughs> I think we've probably emptied the tank with advice, but I mean, the biggest thing, particularly at the moment and just in general, is ventilation. It's just improving the ventilation in buildings. It dilutes everything that's inside that's been building up over time. Um, and it's a really positive thing to do for sort of cooling down the building so for sustainability measures and also the indoor air quality oh yeah from from the sort of the properties of business side of it i just say look it's a a bit of a cliche now but movement is life in in business and you have to be constantly innovating and changing and this isn't going away this issue um this is really in in the mindset of everyone consumer and 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 businesses now so get ahead of it and you'll have a real opportunity to benefit from it but um yeah that's where i'm coming from it especially after 25 million people download this podcast guys everyone will be aware <laughs> <laughs> and we'll put our private island with our with our matching Turquoise Lamborghinis. <laughs> Which what? produce zero, zero carbon Lamborghinis. <laughs> oh, sorry, yeah, electric Lamborghinis. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, love it. So last question, where can people uh, find, follow, get in touch with you? Cool. Um, our website is www.airrated.co. Um, you can also follow us on Instagram, which is at airscore. Um, and I think that's all the handles. Francesco, have I missed any? I mean, we have LinkedIn as well. So we've got an Aerator company page and Twitter as well. So I think that's at Aerated. Super. I'm going to ask a really dumb question, but how on earth do you have an Instagram page photographing air? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's always the challenge, isn't it? Making the invisible visible. Um, but we've uh, selected some beautiful imagery, which we think uh, sums it up. <laughs> I'm going to have to check this out. I'm going to have to follow you guys after this and then check out how you uh, how you magic that up. <laughs> but guys, amazing! Abs- learned a load. Thank you so much for your time. Been an absolute pleasure, uh, and hopefully this will be one of many. Brilliant. Thank you guys Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for listening to the Built for Life podcast. If you learned something new today or found value from hearing from a different property perspective, please comment on what you found useful as it helps us understand what you like and what you want to hear more of. And also please subscribe if you want more and most importantly, please share this video to the people in your network you believe will get the most value from the information as you are personally helping spread information and education across the industry. As they say, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change your world. And by you watching and sharing this, you are now part of that group.
And just to finish, if you would like unlimited free access to the world's best research and resources related to health, well-being and the built environment, you can subscribe to the Life Proven Library where academic research, reports and case studies are regularly added. They're then reviewed in detail and the key findings are extracted into easy to use dot points and also a brief summary video. So you don't even need to read the reports, all the heavy lifting has been done for you as you can just watch the summary. So just head to www.lifeproven.co.uk and click on the button library at the top of the page. And as always, if you have a project, an investment opportunity, or you are interested in a collaboration and would like to discuss directly, you can contact us at adam at lifeproven.co.uk.